Good evening and welcome. This is Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio, and we are glad you're joining us. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackelford, your host of Bird Calls, which has been on the air here at Red River Radio for over 10 years. I'll be introducing our guest in just a bit, and we'll be ready to answer your questions about birds this evening. So let's hear from you by calling us at 800-552-8502. Again, 1-800-552-8502. For you long-time listeners, you know that we end every episode with a conservation tip. Just a couple minutes of an idea or a topic that you can take home with you and try to perform to help the environment, help our birds, and often help ourselves. So last month, we, we talked about nuisance bird nests, and so we recap the previous month's conservation tips. So that's what we're at right now. We're recapping what I discussed at the end of the last episode in November. And again, that was regarding nuisance bird nests. Or, you know, people, they they love birds until they get dive-bombed. They love birds until there's poop all over the porch. They they love birds until there's an issue, a nuisance problem. And, And of course, nuisance is quite subjective what some people consider annoying might be delightful to somebody else. Um, but we're going to talk in, in depth with our guest tonight about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. And, and you know, if you do have a nest of barn swallows, what we call colloquially know as mud swallows, um, or maybe a mockingbird in the bush right outside the garage and you walk out and you get dive-bombed by the parents. You, first of all, just remember that these are birds that think you're Godzilla. <laughs> and they're being good parents. They're protecting their eggs or young. They're being good parents. We should give them a nod for that, a plus for that. Um, if it just gets too crazy and, and, you know, the next year you just don't want it to happen, that's when you can you can do something about it because the bird, the birds are protected. The nest is protective when active, but when that nest is inactive or empty, doesn't have eggs or nestlings in it, you can deal with it. But if you find out about it that first year and there's babies in there, I don't, I morally, I wouldn't do it. And I hope you don't either, but legally you can't do it. So if you want to deal with a bird nest that's just bothering you, you can only do it before the eggs are laid. And that's quite simple. Another thing to think about the two birds I mentioned, especially the first one, the barn swallow, that they're eating pesky insects. So we've got to give them a huge thumbs up. That means they're good neighbors to have. They're eating flies and other pesky insects around the house. So I I like them. I, I you know, if, if I got dive-bombed, I'd chuckle because these birds don't have strong beaks. They don't have 
claws like a tiger. They're not going to draw blood. They're just going to try to shoo you away. And if it works, then use the back door. Use the side door. You might have to do that for a few weeks. Big deal. Because they're trying to raise a family, too. And I think that's the, that's the big point is you've got other kind of neighbors uh, other than your birds that are trying to raise kids in the house next door or down the street. Why can't these birds do the same thing? So let birds have their space. Let them raise their young. And especially the ones that, whether you realize it or not, are benefiting you. That, that mockingbird I mentioned, he's quite a songster. He might be providing you with some some tunes that are really nice to listen to uh, when they're singing. So, so think about that. Before you consider it a nuisance, just remember there's a lot of value to these birds, whether you know it or not. The Christmas bird count season is upon us, and I wanted to spend a little bit of time on it because what I really want to do is alert new listeners that we covered the Christmas bird count in great detail this time last year. So if you go to the the web and pull up on the browser Red River Radio and go to bird calls and scroll through all the past shows, look up the December 2022 episode and our guest was David Wolf and we talked about a lot of things but the focus was the Christmas bird count. So listen to that episode if you want to get a good idea of what's involved with the Christmas bird count. But basically, it's the longest-running citizen science project. It's been around since the year 1900. It it's, gives us a good idea of how bird populations are doing using the winter season. The name might be a little misleading. It, it's really the Christmas season bird count. It's not necessarily on Christmas Day. There's about a three-week period where the count in your area could occur. It's in a fixed 15-mile radius circle. And and that's the neat thing about science is you, you want to replicate without changing the methods. So that circle is set in stone. It doesn't move. And years and years and decades and decades of counting birds at Christmas season time, we get an idea of what's going on. And we can see, you know, there's species that we didn't have 20 years ago, like maybe Eurasian collar dove is something new in your count area. Or maybe you notice that pine siskins are dropping in numbers and certainly loggerhead shrike. Uh, We talk about that in the episode last year. So, Uh, It's a great time of the year for bird watchers. It's a great time if you're new to get involved on a Christmas count because when you you introduce yourself to the count compiler, this might be via email, you can can tell them, hey, I'm new at this, and they'll put you with someone that's seasoned, and and you can spend half day or full day bird watching with, with someone who you'll learn a lot from. So again, go go back to the past show from December 2022, 12 months ago, and listen to that episode. David Wolf did a great job. He, longtime birder and longtime compiler and co-compiler of, of a Christmas count, and he's been doing that for a long time. He's been certainly participating for over half a century and 
much of that he's been a compiler, so he did a really great job. And also, um, Jeff Farrell, who works here at the radio station, did an interview with me and ran that maybe three or four days ago for any morning listeners um, embedded within Morning Edition, I believe. I, I caught a little bit of it, and uh, we gave a big shout-out to the Christmas bird count as well. Next up is a profile species. Tonight we're profiling a plump, long-billed shorebird called the Wilson Snipe. We have two recordings to play. One heard most often when the bird is flushed, especially on the wintering, wintering grounds here in the deep south, and another recording from more northerly breeding latitudes. First, let's listen to the snipe's flush call when scared off the ground. Let's play that one one more time. You could even hear the wing beats. That's how close the microphone was. So that's the flush call. Now let's listen to the eerie display sounds called winnowing, heard farther up north during the breeding season. Here's winnowing. Sounds like something from a Star Wars movie. By the way, those winnowing sounds we just heard are made by air rushing over the outspread tail feathers while the bird is in flight. That means it's a sound made by a structural feature of the bird's feathers and not a vocalization. We won't hear that in the south. These birds breed farther to the north. If you learned bird names decades ago, you knew this one as the common snipe. In 2002, taxonomists split that species into two. Eurasia retained the common snipe, while ours here in North America is known as the Wilson snipe. The long tradition of snipe hunt pranks at night during summer camps has incorrectly convinced many people that snipes are a made-up creature. The snipe is a real species, and it's a game bird, which can be hunted during a legal season. Some hunters refer to this bird as a jack snipe. Overall, Wilson snipe are brown with streaks and speckles throughout, making them perfectly camouflaged for living on the ground in wet, muddy areas like flooded fields, marshes, shoreline edges, and boggy areas. They're roughly the size of a softball with short legs. When flush, they usually emit that flush call we heard earlier while quickly flying away on fast, rapid wing beats. With their long bill, they poke and prod deep into the soft mud or sand for invertebrates like earthworms, insects, snails, spiders, and much more. They also eat seeds and berries when available. To see a photo of a Wilson snipe snapped by James Childress, please visit the bird calls page at redriverradio.org. We have a guest, and he has 
phoned in from far away, and I'm excited to have Dean Demarest, who's with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He works in the Atlanta, Georgia office. Uh, he and I have been buddies for a, a long time, and, uh, and I'm excited that he is our guest on our 100th episode. So, Dean, welcome to the show. Welcome to being number 100. Hi, Cliff. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. <laughs> great. Great to, be, great to be part of a landmark show. Hey, it's, it's just amazing that, that we could fit it in. You don't, you don't want to be one, number one. You want to be number 100. I, I, <laughs> I think that's one time where it makes, might make a difference. So, yeah, I'm sure the number one show, we were goof, goofing around and messing up and all that. I don't even remember. That's been so long ago. So, so Dean, you, you work out of the Atlanta office, Fish and Wildlife, but you're traveling, and you're somewhere in Alabama, and when we set this all up, you didn't know you were going to travel, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're traveling, and you know, you're know you pretty rural. We're thinking, oh, no, connectivity issues, but technology is catching up, and we're doing pretty good. So, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Dean. Just give us a, a brief bio sketch, including where you're born and where you've lived, you where, where you went to school, and your hobbies, and so forth. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, I uh, I grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania, just outside of the Pittsburgh area. Uh, my schooling and uh, education have taken me to many states: uh, West Virginia, Mississippi, Texas, Florida. I now in Georgia, as you noted. Um, some of the things that keep me busy are, uh, of course, birding. I mean, how can you have a career in conservation with a conservation agency and not enjoy uh, wildlife in some way? But all things sort of outdoors are of interest. Hiking, um, a lot of landscaping and gardening with native plants oftentimes, um, often for the birds, which makes it even more enjoyable and rewarding. Uh, I've spent a lot of time hunting and fishing growing up. That's actually how I got my start and my interest in birds. So lots of outdoor things and um, pretty diverse geographic background as far as work and education. Great. So you mentioned birds. How old were you when you oh got goodness. hooked? <laughs> Do you remember what the bird was or the, the trip that made that brought I... birds to your attention? I do, and I, if I remember your story, I think we have the same bird, pileated oh, woodpecker. Wow, I think. I'd forgotten yeah. that. Yes. I was probably like um, maybe seven years old or so, and I, I remember as a kid finding the holes that they would leave behind in uh, some big black cherry trees in the backyard and asking my parents about what did that, and they told me that one day I might actually see one. And when it came back to visit those holes, looking for carpenter ants and sure enough, one uh, late winter day, uh, it caused a real commotion. My, my parents were on the phone with the neighbor lady where the tree was between our two yards. And they were, I mean, to have this big black and white woodpecker with a red crest, like within feet of your house, working away, knocking chips of wood was, um, pretty memorable as a kid. And it, um, I don't know what it was about the allure of woodpeckers, but um, it kept me going into the woods trying to find more and learn more about birds. Yeah, that's so similar to my story. I've forgotten that, that we had talked about that. Like I said earlier, we've known each other for a long time, probably 23, 24 years. So. I think that's about right. And, yeah. and we also determined we're only two months apart in age, so we're, we're from the cool club. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm a little <laughs> older. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> 
Um, okay, so Dean, you work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, so please tell us about the, the many things covered by your agency, especially in the Migratory Bird Office um, where you're, you're reporting. Yeah, um, the service has a pretty broad mandate, and uh, it's we're, we're not as well known as other Department of Interior agencies like the Park Service, for example, where people are familiar with the national parks. But we do have some notable programs that people might um, be aware of. Uh, foremost is probably the National Wildlife Refuge System. So folks who are interested in birds and birding are probably familiar with our refuges. The Endangered Species Program is another one, so Threatened and Endangered Species. We're responsible for administering uh, the Endangered Species Act. We have a number of private lands assistance programs that oftentimes landowners may find themselves in need of technical assistance for um, forestry or wildlife, other conservation-related activities. Um, and another big one that folks may have heard of is the Federal Duck Stamp, we administer uh, the hunting program as well as the federal duck stamp. Every hunter who wants to participate in migratory bird hunting related activities needs to have a federal duck stamp for that. So we administer the art contest as well as the actual stamp program, which is essentially like a license, federal license. Um, that program is actually run out of our migratory bird shop, but we have a number of other um, programs that are migratory bird related like uh, setting the annual hunting seasons for migratory birds, so for ducks and geese and some of the other hunted species. Uh, we play a principal role in that, ensuring that over the years, um, harvest is sustainable and the populations uh, remain stable, and we do that in a scientifically sound manner. And we run a number of partnership programs that engage federal and state, as well as private conservation stakeholders, basically all trying to work together at uh, sort of a large landscape scale to ensure that we're not just working on birds individually, but we're trying to manage them at the population level. And we call that program the Joint Venture Program. It's been very successful, and Congress has been very supportive of that program over the years due to its um, contributions to habitat conservation on the landscape. Great. So anyone listening that thinks that, you know, oh, that's what I want to do, <laughs> You know, it's not. This isn't something you just all of a sudden change your your life in you know a weekend or or a month and and switch careers and go into this. I mean, it, there's there's a lot of stuff that you had to prepare for in advance. So you know, tell us just real quick about what what are some of the qualifications needed to apply for a job like yours with the Fish and Wildlife. Right. Um... Well, there was a time actually when all it really took was a passion for birds or conservation or wildlife or what have you, and you kind of made a job for yourself. But over the decades, the entryway into the conservation profession has gotten much more rigorous. And nowadays, uh, most folks who need to are interested in a career in wildlife need to have a solid educational background, which includes undergraduate work at the collegiate level, as well as oftentimes graduate degrees. So for myself personally, I have graduate degrees in wildlife conservation, but um, it's almost become to where if you don't have advanced degrees, you don't compete well for those positions. Mm -hmm. So it's not that it takes a lot of planning necessarily, it just takes a more formal dedication. All of us have the interest and the passion for wildlife, but you do have to commit to the education and then you have to be willing to 
accept positions that might not be exactly what you had intended when you entered the career, but that get you where you want to go eventually. So lots of entry level positions to get a feel for what the work is all about. And most of us in the field are, it can be a surprise, I guess, to many people to learn that most of wildlife management is actually people management. Mm -hmm. So there's more people work than you really expect when you go into it. There's lots of wildlife and, and great scenery and beauty and all that, but there's a lot of interaction with people. Yeah, emails and meetings and guess guess who does your annual annual review? A person, not a pileated yep. woodpecker. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it might be a pecker head, but not the woodpecker. So and in, in resolving a lot of the issues is really about working with people. You know, most of the yeah. conservation issues we face are a result or involve people in some way. And so that's a big part of the job. Yeah. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host. We have Dean Demarest from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, as our guest tonight. If you have a question, the phone number is 800-552-8502. Dean, let's jump into the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. That's the one thing you've got a lot of experience with, and I want you to tell us about it and how it began and how does it help our bird life. So I'm going to throw it to you. Yeah, um, Migratory Bird Treaty Act is, it's probably easiest to start at its most root level. And it's a domestic law. So the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is a domestic law that protects over a thousand species of migratory birds native throughout the U.S., including our holdings, our overseas holdings in, in the Pacific and uh, Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, which are territories for the, um, managed the United States. And the history of it is that there were uh, at least initially, there was a bilateral treaty. So there's an international treaty between the U.S. and Canada for the protection of migratory birds, recognizing that they are shared resources that we both have a responsibility for protecting and, and managing, stewarding into the future. And as a function of that treaty, Congress uh, ratified that through passing the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So that is a domestic law that implements that treaty with Canada. Over the years, the United States has entered into several other bilateral treaties with Mexico and Japan and Russia for similarly recognizing the need to protect birds that actually we share with all of those countries. So over the years, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act has been amended or revised as these new treaties have been entered into to not only include new species that are protected under the act, but to include some of the specific aspects of the treaty that the two parties would agree to. So our treaty with Canada, for example, did not include certain species of birds as protected, for example, blackbirds, which are considered a nuisance in Canada, often considered a nuisance in the US, were not originally protected under uh, the, the act. But over the years, through the additional treaties, those species, at least on the U.S. side, were afforded protection. And the same applies to groups like raptors, hawks and owls, things that have traditionally had a history of being persecuted and considered marauders of livestock and so forth. It wasn't until our treaty with Mexico and some of the subsequent amendments to the law that afforded protections to owls, hawks, other raptors that originally did not have protection. 
the benefits that we see from the act are are many. They're actually we, we could go into a number of different angles on that, but foundationally, the act serves as a basis for most of the wildlife laws in the United States. It's one of the earliest laws passed to protect wildlife, and it's used as a model internationally, globally, essentially, as a basis for similar protections that are afforded uh, not just birds, but mammals and endangered species all across the globe. It's been a very successful model in that respect. Fundamentally, the act uh, in our in the United States is is very simple in what it prohibits. It prohibits people from taking birds, and take means to possess, to kill, to injure, to shoot, um, and so forth. Not just birds, but their nests or their eggs or their parts, like their feathers, for example. And so, without federal authorization, those activities are prohibited. So it's a very basic protection. Um, that allows the, the federal government essentially to have a nexus for protecting birds. That nexus would not exist otherwise. And given that there are so many activities that people engage in that could potentially harm or injure birds, it ensures that there's some level of oversight for trying to manage those activities in ways that do as little harm as possible to birds and bird populations. Great. I wanted to touch on one point you made there at the end that I hope listeners don't find contradictory to what I said when I recapped the nuisance bird nest is that, and I want to make sure you, you, you concur, that the Fish and Wildlife has determined that the, a, a nest that's being built like, a, like the barn swallow you you can control that, but once that nest is completed and the first egg is laid, it's you you got to you got to let it go. You got to leave it alone. Yeah. That it that's it's that's correct, Cliff. But it's a matter of determining when the nest is actually active or not. So, for some species, that's a little more difficult to determine. For example, a burrowing owl, unless you crawl down its hole, you don't necessarily know that it's got eggs or what have right. you. So there are definitely circumstances that challenge the ability to determine whether the nest is active. But basically, you, you are correct that you you cannot take a nest. It is considered protective unless it's inactive. So for example, a pair of mockingbirds, which you also mentioned earlier, nests in your backyard, they have a successful year, they raise young, they fledge. Once the birds are through with nesting for that year, if you wanted to cut the limb that that nest was in, you are welcome to do so. You cannot possess the nest mm -hmm. technically, but you can remove it and it's no longer considered active. Okay, great. And then when you were mentioning Canada, I, I was thinking of, you remember the, the late late night show with Jay Leno, Tonight Show with Jay Leno, he had that yep. little clip uh, where he occasionally had, uh, what was it called, jaywalking, where he would go out to the general public and say, you know, ask questions that everybody should know. And one of them was, what's the country that borders the U.S. to the north? And, and so, <laughs> you know, this is where birds really can help learn geography, because once you start learning some birds like geese, and ducks that go up into Canada for 
breeding, you realize that, you know, that's why Canada is part of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that you mentioned. And then you exactly. mentioned you mentioned Russia and people might be thinking, well, that's crazy. They, they got to go across the Bering Strait and, and, and it's cold up there and all that Alaska territory. That's nothing for a sandhill crane. And that's a bird that will hop over into Russia is a sandhill crane, among many others. And then you mentioned Japan. And I didn't think about this to confirm, but I recall seeing a band return of a duck. I want to say it was a pintail that was originally banded in Japan. And then sometime later after migration, and I don't know how many years later of the bird's life, it was shot by a duck hunter in Mississippi. So think about that, a bird that was in Japan one, you know, at one point and then in Mississippi, inland Mississippi, another time of its life. So birds have wings. They're just like jet fighters, airplanes. They can get around a lot easier than you and me. So it shouldn't surprise anyone that we need to consider these other countries when we're thinking about birds. And of course, back to jaywalking, what's the country that borders us to the south? I think a lot of people know that now for for discussion of the border wall for hu human reasons, and so we know it's Mexico, but so many of our birds that that breed here winter in Mexico and points farther south, and so we're we're sharing birds. These birds don't appreciate or understand our political borders. Um, they they might understand a, an ocean as a barrier or a mountain range or a desert, but but not a political line like like what we've done with with Mexico and the U.S. It's a, it's the Rio Grande, and, and you and I can throw, a, in some places, throw a rock across. It's that narrow. Right. Um, right. And, and certainly walk across when we don't get enough rain to fill, fill that channel. And for you John Wayne movie fans, that would be, that'd be the Rio Bravo. That's the old name of Rio Grande. Oh, and another, while I'm on the to topic, th this is something I caught a lot when I worked for Parks and Wildlife is people would submit uh, paperwork, um, whether it's a proposal to do stuff, and they would write Rio Grande River. And it's basically saying River Great River. River Grand River. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you just write R Rio Grande. You don't have to say, it's like saying, you know, German Shepherd dog. I, I think people get it when you say German Shepherd. You don't need to include dog. They don't think it's a cat. So, I used to laugh at our school cafeteria menu when they had Mexican tacos. It's like, <laughs> what other kind of tacos? Yeah, <laughs> I, I've never had an Italian taco. That's right. H how'd they taste back then? Uh, like cafeteria food. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and you and I have traveled down to the Rio Grande Valley before. We've eaten some true tacos down there before. Exactly. Good yeah, stuff. There's no comparison to the real deal. That's right. Okay. This is Cliff Shackleford. You're listening to Bird Calls. I've got Dean Demarest here. We're talking about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. If you've got a question about the act or a, just any old question about birds, call us, 1-800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. And Dean, I've got some follow-up. So we talked about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. I'm curious, and you said it protects about 1,000 species, but... Let's talk about that, I think, confusing word migratory when it's covering mm -hmm. things that are non-migratory like our backyard cardinal. 
So what do you say to that? Is 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 a non-migrating cardinal, i.e., resident bird, is that covered in the act? Yes. Yeah. Actually, uh, most most native birds to the United States are protected under the act. There's only a few groups or species that aren't. For example, non-native species. So uh, rock pigeon, what people just call pigeon, is an example. House sparrow is another example. European starling is, these are all introduced species that are non-native to the U.S. and they're not afforded protections under the act. It's designed to protect our native wildlife. There are also groups of birds that are not included by virtue of other authorities that manage them. So for example, what we call resident game birds in the United States, these are quail, uh, grouse, wild turkey is another example. A lot of uh, our prairie grouse, like prairie chickens, are not protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act because we recognize the state's authorities to manage and regulate resident wildlife, resident birds in this case. There are some exceptions, of course, to federal oversight. So, for example, for Atwater's prairie chicken, which is a um, protected under the Endangered Species Act, that's a different act. Mm -hmm. It is afforded protection, but it's technically not protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Mm -hmm. So to that question of migratory, yes, it's a little counterintuitive that species that we typically think of as resident, like Carolina chickadee or Northern Cardinal or Song Sparrow, and there's lots and lots of other examples, are considered migratory for purposes of protection under the Act. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We can't get into all of those, but the, the, at the simplest, it's it has to do with the groups that these birds belong to. So cardinals are a finch, and Song Sparrow, of course, is a sparrow. Mockingbird is a, a mimid. And um, in the treaty, the actual bilateral treaty with Canada and with Japan and Mexico and Russia, a number of these groups of birds are afforded protection because there are members of that group that are migratory. So, for example, in the sparrow family, song sparrow may not be considered migratory, but other species of sparrows definitely do migrate. And so to make it simple in terms of administration, the protections were afforded to all the members of those groups. Each treaty um, added different groups because, for example, in Japan, there are groups of birds that we share with that country that we don't necessarily share with the other countries. And so each treaty added groups and therefore added species. And the simplest way to manage that from an administrative standpoint is to afford the protections across the board and not have complicated lists that people need to pay attention to. You, you mentioned the Endangered Species Act. Gosh, we could have a whole episode on just that. Uh, but I, I'd like for you to explain another bird protection act known as the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act. Indeed that, yeah. Um, so there are, there are actually probably over three dozen federal laws that protect birds in some way, birds and wildlife. And the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act is one of those. Um, as many people probably recognize, bald eagle is our national symbol. And in the middle part of the last century, there was concern over 
the bald eagle becoming basically endangered or even extinct due to persecution. Eagles, eagles were thrown in with all the other hawks and owls as sort of these marauders, especially out west. Um, golden eagles, perfect example, where people actually poisoned them because they considered them a threat to livestock. So the federal government recognized this and afforded protections to bald eagles in 1940 and later amended that act in the 60s to add golden eagle, the same level of protection, even though it wasn't our national symbol. And this act is, is fairly similar to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, of, of which those two species are protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So you say, why do we need a, an Eagle Act if we have the Migratory Bird Treaty Act? But the Eagle Act adds additional protections that prevent uh, or make it illegal, essentially, to harass and disturb these species. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act doesn't prohibit those activities. So go back to your barn swallow example from earlier um, you can harass essentially barn saw, shoo them away, so to speak, so they don't nest under your eave if you don't want them there. But technically speaking, harassing or disturbing eagles is considered uh, against the law under the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection mm -hmm. Act. Wow. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host. We've got Dean Demarest on the phone, and we've got a couple call callers on deck. Let's hear from Mark from Shreveport. Mark, are you there? Yeah, hey Cliff, how are you? Hey, good. R really good show tonight. Uh, I wanted to ask you a couple of things. When I was a kid, my dad used to raise cardinals in captivity, and I remember when uh, wildlife dropped by the house and told my dad to release all the cardinals. He couldn't have them in captivity. And uh, I noticed uh, on Facebook a few months ago where some uh, gentlemen had, were raising morning doves in captivity, and I, I asked them, I said, well, I don't think you can do that under the North American Migratory Act bird act and they were telling me that you can so i wanted to find out if that was true or not well i'm going to let dean answer the dove okay. question but i want to get your dad's address for the cardinal in captivity because we're gonna we're gonna pick him up oh no he's uh, no, he, my dad's passed away <laughs> no I, well we're gonna pick you up him. we're gonna pick you up mark <laughs> because you, but, you, you were related to him and he wasn't supposed to have those cardinals in a cage so mark give me your address speak slowly <laughs> <laughs> well, I, just wanted, I was kind of curious about that because, you know, a cardinal doesn't migrate. They stay around, you know, they're yeah. here year-round. Yeah. And uh, my, my dad, he had a bunch of cardinals that he raised in captivity. Yeah, and I remember, And I remember uh, the uh, – well, what happened was his dad had started it, and uh, he, had, he had, when his dad passed away, he just kind of inherited the situation. Yeah, that's but, uh, that's kind of like but, telling us that there's a moonshine in the backyard too. We really want that address, Mark. But they 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 did really they did really well in activity in uh, captivity. But the other thing I was wondering about, I, I, as a kid, you know, I raised pigeons and parakeets and stuff like that. And as a kid, I was always told by wildlife, you can't have a morning dove in a cage. Yeah, let's you know? let's let Dean field that one. Okay. Go ahead, Dean. All right. Yeah. No. No. That that is. That is correct. Um, the, the, the law prohibits what we call possession. So basically taking a protected species of migratory bird and making it yours. We get calls all the time from people who are enamored with the beauty of, of wild birds and they want to have a barn owl or they want to have a painted bunting or they want to have a cardinal or something. And technically speaking, that is unlawful to capture and possess birds. As a matter of fact, a lot of our law enforcement efforts uh, related to trafficking 
Cardinals, uh, painted bunnings, indigo buntings, rose-breasted grosbeak are all popular species in illegal wildlife trafficking because of right. the colors and because of the songs. And um, no, you're really not supposed to have mourning dove. Uh, it's a protected species. You're not supposed to have any captivity. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And I asked the guy online, I said, well, look, you know, I, I don't think you can do that. He says, well, you can get, Louisiana Wildlife will give you a, a permission to raise them in captivity. I said, well... So I don't think you can do that. So all of a sudden he unfriended, he, uh, he blocked me on Facebook. He, he un unplugged it. Yeah, we are our law enforcement <laughs> officers. They find stuff on social media. It's unbelievable what people post right. on social media, and they make a lot of their cases based on people's online behavior. Oh yeah, yeah. This and I know, of course, the Eurasian ringneck. I mean, they're not they're not native to America. And I guess you could. I, I used to, I used to raise those uh, buy them from a pet shop. Yeah, you know, so I mean, yeah, uh, th those are totally okay. And th this yeah. this guy that was telling you to keep mooring doves, I he was the same guy that was eyeing your property. He wanted to <laughs> buy it from you, and he thought he could do that if if you got put in prison. Right. I so yeah, you. some friend he was. And a couple of more <laughs> questions before I get off the phone. Wow, we're gonna start charge. We're gonna start charging, Mark. But go ahead. Okay, two more questions that I'll get off the phone. Two here. more. Uh, uh, two, just one. Okay, All one, right. The whooping crane. The whooping crane in Louisiana is, is it doing better? Is it surviving? Is it reproducing? And I read somewhere where there was a bunch of owls out out in the uh, in the west somewhere. I think it's Oregon, maybe that they were going to kill one owl to save owls. Mm. Because I think there was close to yeah. five hundred thousand owls out there. And I thought that was kind of ridiculous. Yeah, let, let's let Dean talk about the spotted owl. And, and because you might be brewing more questions, Mark, we're, we're going to... No more, que no more questions. You I'll just listen up. Line. You listen up. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Right. Yeah, the owl, the owl one is a curious one. Um, we, we, the Fish and Wildlife Service, has been petitioned by a number of people who are interested in the conservation of spotted owl, which is uh, protected under the Endangered Species Act. It's not doing so well. But barred owl, another species of owl, which is a protected species, is depredating spotted owls. It's basically displacing them and, and taking over, and it's a threat to the spotted owl. So we're faced in a kind of a weird position of pitting one protected species against another. Um, but based on the biology and the fact that there's, there's scientific evidence, there have been studies and, and documentation of the threat that barred owls pose to spotted owls, we've we've reluctantly entered into very limited arrangement with some of the management authorities out there to allow limited take of uh, barred owl to help support the recovery of spotted owl so that that is true we we do that but that is not common it's it's uh, very restricted we we place lots of sideboards on those kinds of activities and his other question, the whooping cranes, and he's talking about the ones at White Lake, not far from yep. Lafayette, south, a little bit south and west of Lafayette. And and do, do you have anything updated on that? Up to I, that's, a, that's a resident population. It's a little different than some of our other whooping crane populations. I don't have the specific numbers, but I know they had a couple mortalities uh, over the last year, but the population appears to be fairly stable. Um, but it's as far as um, whooping crane like protection with the Endangered Species Act, this particular population in Louisiana is sort of, it's considered an experimental population because we wanna try and spread the species to other areas. And to try and promote that, we lessen the restrictions on activities that pertain to that species. But 
Um, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries is, is really the in-charge agency there and would have the best information on status of that population. Yeah, and for those that don't know, the, historically there was resident populations a little bit separated along the Gulf Coast that didn't migrate, but those have all been wiped out. The genetics of being resident got wiped out, and so all that was left were these 14 or so birds in the 40s or 30s that would migrate from wood buffalo in Canada down to the central coast of Texas. And those have proliferated, well, pro propagated. And so they took some of those with the migratory gene and said, we're going to put you here in Louisiana, birds. you got to sit still and don't migrate, become resident. Well, they couldn't take the migratory gene out because that those birds, have many of them have instead of going north-south, they've gone east-west. East, and that's caused yeah. a big problem in Texas because those birds aren't sticking to White Lake uh, Refuge in Louisiana. And all of a sudden they've gone to places including the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and Robertson County, Texas, and the upper Texas coast, um, which in, in the summer, in the warmer months, which is very confusing. Um, so anyway, there's just been a lot of, uh, of confusion because of those birds, because they just couldn't take the migratory nature out uh, of those birds. So um, we've got another caller. I, I think, did we cover everything that Mark was asking? Okay, we've got another caller. We've got John from Fishville. John, are you there? I'm here, Cliff. Okay. Yep. What do you got for us? Well, we've got a... a, a a migratory problem, uh, well, it's not, maybe it's not a problem, but it's a question. They, um, about a thousand pilgrims have landed in a lake here. Pelicans? Right Pelicans, yeah. Okay, I think I heard you say pilgrims. Uh, no, they're from Antarctica. <laughs> Pelicans. I thought you were talking about Thanksgiving and pilgrims, but go ahead, Pelicans. <laughs> they... Uh, they landed here in th on Thanksgiving Day, actually, when I saw them, about a thousand, and stayed until this north wind just blew in uh, this weekend. And they left, of course. That means they were catching that north wind to go back down to South America. But I'm, my, my question is, do you think the drought has caused these dry lakes to cause them to be off schedule, or is there something else going on with Mother Nature? Well, did, did you say those thousand pelicans landed in water? Yes. Oh, yeah. So, so, so why would a drying lake be a problem if they found one? That's, the, that's one of the points of being a wetland bird. You've got to search and look and keep wandering, but you're saying they found the water, and that's, that's a good thing. But well, they have never been here before. Well, I think yeah. I think you were at work before, because because <laughs> these pelicans will fly over, and and maybe land for a couple hours, and we're at the the, the grocery store when that happens. So you can't rule that out, John. You can't rule out that you were on a trip visiting your kids in another state when it happened as well. But for millennia, American white pelicans have been flying from northern breeding grounds through the Gulf Coast states, looking for water like that pond and continuing on to the Gulf Coast. They don't go to South America. 
they, they're, go, they're not going that far south, but the Gulf Coast is definitely a place to go. And, and yeah. Dean, would you like to follow up on that? Yeah, we, um, to, to, and Cliff, I definitely agree with that. I mean, migratory birds are, are wanderers. They're going to show up in places that we've never seen them in before or haven't noticed them in. But American white pelican, which I'm assuming these are white pelicans, are, are expanding just rapidly. So their population is growing and they're utilizing areas much further east in the United States than they used to. So we're, we're actually getting a lot more public concerns, stakeholder concerns, like from aqu aquaculture producers. Um, here at the refuge I'm actually traveling at this week in Alabama, they have American white pelicans who are showing up regularly now, and they create a water quality issue when they hang out near the intakes of some of the community water supply sources. So they basically pollute the water from having eaten fish and left their droppings there. So much like cormorants that have been a concern for predating fish, getting into fish farms, eating crawfish, uh, we're finding more and more complaints about American white pelicans and largely as a function of a pretty rapid population growth. John, you got anything sure else I'm, for us? I'm, to be sure I'm talking about the right bird. Now, it's a white pelican, but they, uh, when they fly, the underside of their wing is black. Is yeah. It, am I, That's right. Yeah, the only, right. Other, the only other pelican in the, on the continent is the brown pelican, and it is strictly coastal. The only time you're going to see it inland is there's probably been a tropical storm or hurricane or something like that, but... Yeah, and the white pelican is usually in big groups when they migrate south and again north, um, and, and, and they're migratory. They, they have to get out of the north because the water freezes. And yeah. th that's the cue that says to any duck or pelican or goose or whoever uses the water to get out of there, go south. Yeah. So well, I wondered if there was something else besides uh, the drought causing a lot of the waterways to be too dry for them to stop at. The, the problem would be if every water source dried up, John, that would be a problem. And, and that that's a gas station for these birds, just like we have to refuel on a long yeah. journey. They do too. So, so I'm glad that your pond that you noticed had water in it, and that, that gave those pelicans a place to rest and refuel. So thank, thanks for the call, John. Okay, Cliff, keep up the good work, Great. man. Great, thank you. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackle, Ford, your host. We've got Dean Demarest with the Fish and Wildlife here. If you've got a question, you've got just minutes left. That number is 800-552-8502. With the remaining minutes we have left, Dean, I wanted to um, ask you, what, what are some of the, we talked about nuisance birds, but let's talk about what are the most common non-nuisance related requests that the public is asking for bird permits from your agency? What are folks needing help with? Right, yeah, no, we, we covered a little bit of one of the main things we deal with, which is that question of, can I have a bird? Can mm -hmm. I possess a bird? So we get lots of calls from people who, uh, as I mentioned earlier, are just enamored with bird life and want to have that in some way. And oftentimes it's it's more feathers or or the nest we uh, i've been to a lot of people's houses who have picked up nests and like to display them just because of the intricate work of the bird building the nest um, but we do get some people who actually call us and inquire about that can i do that and technically speaking we could issue a permit for that but it's sort of a pandora's box to do that we tend not to authorize 
possession except to institutions like museums and things like that where obviously there's an educational yeah. um so that's a real common one um and i've mentioned yep. it i mentioned this on the show many times about you find a dead owl on the road it's perfect shape you you think it's ex exquisite it is the the intricate feather coloration yeah. is amazing and you'd sure like to have it mounted and put on the wall and, and you're calling for that kind of permission or you just take it slip it to your taxidermist and say hey can you mount this for me and, and that's a big no-no you'll never get permission for that uh that's from right. a private citizen you 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 better have a nature center a museum or something where the, that bird will have a benefit to the general public and not your private home so don't pick up dead birds and take it to your taxidermist he's gonna say goodbye you're going to drive off and he's going to call the game warden and he's got all your information um, yep. so don't do it um, and then the other thing i was going to mention you you talked about this Mar the caller mark mentioned about cage birds that are illegal Th there are game wardens both state and federal that troll the internet um, looking at things like craigslist and and, mm -hmm. and going to flea markets where people are you know, selling just whatever they can to make a buck, and they've got painted yeah. bunnings for sale. And, and so it's a big no-no. And, and if you're going to put it on the Internet on Craigslist, they're going to catch you. If you're going to yep. go to a flea market and have them for sale, they're going to catch you. Someone's, someone that is going to be shopping there that's bird savvy and is going to have their game warden number, because that was another conservation tip I gave, is have – like 911 is handy, have your local game warden's number in your phone so when you're at that local flea market and you see someone selling painted bunnings or cardinals or whatever that's native, give them a call, have them come down and set that story straight. Um, so that that's I've mentioned all that on previous episodes, so I always like to repeat myself because I'm a parrot just to talk the same same oftentimes, thing over and over. Cliff, I was going to say, oftentimes it's not just the bird, but it's often the feathers. Uh, people yeah. Do, do art and jewelry and things like that's that. Right. that utilize bird parts. And um, that's a no-no as well. You Once you start allowing people to trade in bird parts, whether it's art or jewelry or what have you, it's hard to differentiate what sort of an honest thing from a dishonest thing. So yeah. all of it is prohibited. That's right. And and the bird the bird art you mentioned, like, a, you know, you make a bouquet of flowers and you found blue jay feathers in the yard and you stick those beautiful blue jay feathers in there. That's a big no-no. Yeah. And you can say, well, I found it. I didn't kill the bird. Well, you can't really demonstrate that to law enforcement. So the, the, the rule is just don't go there. Don't do it. Just stick, just stick real flowers fake flowers but leave the bird parts out leave the feathers out so dean we're running out of time real quick i know you're based in atlanta and you're a bird watcher if we've got any listeners that are in the atlanta area or they're traveling this is the christmas season tell us what one or two of your favorite birding sites in the greater atlanta area sure uh well one of my favorites a well-known one is uh called kennesaw mountain it's actually managed by the park service as a national battlefield so it's got some civil war history it's what we refer to as a monad knock which is a big word for a rock sticking out of the landscape it's a granite dome 
Um, and it's a magnet for birds that uh, traverse a largely flat landscape. And we get all kinds of rare sightings. It's a great spot to see cerulean warblers in migration. We get high counts of that bird there. Um, but it's home to a lot of other resident birds. One of my favorite spots, great trails. Cool. Awesome. Well, Dean, I had so many more questions for you. I can hear the phone ringing right now. I don't know why people wait till the 11th hour and 59 minutes to call, but they do. And, and sorry about that if you're calling and you're wanting to get on, but we we have a deadline here. We got to get off the air. And Dean, thanks so much for coming on the air. Uh, enjoy your travels to Alabama. And when you get home to Atlanta, I uh, hope you have a good holiday uh, coming up. Thank you, Dean. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Cliff, same to you. I enjoyed it. Thanks Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to end with a conservation tip. And that tip's titled, Support Our National and State Parks. If you like traveling in order to visit the great outdoors, your hiking shoes and binoculars aren't the only things to remember to pack. You also don't want to leave home without your annual National Parks Pass or your state's annual State Park Pass. The two passes will get you into our wonderful parks, both federally and state-owned. Some states, like Arkansas and Missouri, don't require a state park pass because they wisely fund their park system with a portion of their general sales tax. One-eighth of a cent in Arkansas, to be exact, which generates much-needed funds that keep their parks beautiful and attractive to both local visitors and those from far away. You can purchase national and state park passes online before you hit the road. Join the team and have that park pass ready, knowing you support public places for people to enjoy hiking, camping, bird watching, and other outdoor activities perfect for all ages. Do it for you and your family and do it for the birds. That concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackelford, resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio, and our phone-in guest, Dean Demarest. Thanks for joining us, Dean. This show has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kiara Lafitte, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. Tonight's sound files of a Wilson snipe were recorded by Paul Marvin and Martin St. Michael and can be found at the website xenocanto.org. The photo we used for the snipe on the Bird Calls webpage was snapped by James Childress. This show, the 100th episode, will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. If you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Again, redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, January 9th. And remember, do it for the birds.